to me, smart energy community is not an end state. You're always... We're never going to reach the destination never and say we're actually, done and we don't have to do anything no, else. Yeah. No. That being said, we do need communities across Canada yeah. to better understand the impact of their decisions on energy use yeah. and on, therefore, greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. You know, we can't just point upstream and say it's their fault. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring you different voices from the CEA team. Our featured discussion on today's podcast is with Tanya Leach, the executive director of Quest, but before we get to my conversation with Tanya, I'm joined once again on the podcast by Michael Powell, CEA's Government Relations Director, to talk about recent news. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Francis. So what have you spotted in the news uh, recently? Well, I want to talk about storms and resilience this time. Uh, since we've had the last time to chat, there's been two very significant storms in yep. uh, central and eastern Canada mm -hmm. with uh, a major Thanksgiving snowstorm in Manitoba that knocked out much of the province and caused more than a hundred million dollars in damage 34 large or 38 transmission uh, towers were down 3,000 poles and uh, you know many customers having a, a hard time knowing when they'll they'll get back uh, online they're all of course back up now yep. and just uh, last week in Quebec almost a million customers were knocked out after a very violent windstorm mm -hmm. more than a hundred kilometers an hour uh, affected the sector and uh, you know we can point to other uh, challenges that our, our sector has seen in the past couple of years mm -hmm. whether it be from hurricanes or tornadoes but uh, it's a reminder of uh, the unpredictable nature of weather and how that can have a cascading effect very quickly. The Manitoba one is particularly interesting where an early and uh, big snowstorm meant that uh, trees were caught uh, with you know snow and ice uh, when they still had leaves and, and so yeah. uh, were yeah. affected in a very different way than they might otherwise have been. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's a strange one too where you know there were times where the snow quickly melted afterwards, but power was still out because well, it takes time to get transmission towers back up, and uh, it's difficult to get crews there when there's still a heavy snow. Right, interesting, um, and it's and it's certainly the beginning of uh, yet another storm season or winter storm season. Well, it seems we seem to go from one cycle to the, to to another. Right, it, it seems to always be a storm season somewhere. Right, uh, in particular, if we look beyond Canada and to the United States, where. Uh, fires uh, are causing challenges with the grid there, mm -hmm. and in a way that you wouldn't yeah. have expected, uh, where uh, transmission lines are being de-energized, yeah. and so rolling brownouts are a fact of life for some people in an effort to stop wildfires. That state obviously has had uh, real challenges with that in the past couple of years, and uh, any effort to reduce those is is causing so uh, looking means looking for solutions that we wouldn't have thought previously mm -hmm. well it's it's november right now in ottawa let's hope for the best as we head into, head into the winter season anything else that uh, that you uh, caught we talk mind? about a, a potential solution for some of these things okay. uh, which is in vermont uh, green mountain power has a pilot program that helped 1100 of the their customers uh, keep uh, the power on despite a blackout that affected more than 100 
100,000 homes, basically by um, integrating storage. And mm -hmm. so Tesla Powerwalls or similar mm -hmm. devices, they were able to keep the lights and fridges running for, uh, you know, as many as a couple of days, but most often nine or 12 hours mm -hmm. uh, while while the lights were out. Uh, right now, uh, storage devices like that are quite expensive. The upfront cost for a Powerwall is, is basically as much as a small car, right. but uh, and it's difficult to amortize based on just keeping the lights on. But as they get less expensive, and as innovative solutions like this come, those short-term gaps that you might see from when uh, you know the the regular sort of storm that mm -hmm. knocks a few local poles out mm -hmm. uh, would mean that you might be able to keep things running on a on a short-term basis without much effect. And for those longer ones, that your costs for things like your fridge or freezer would be offset. So it sounds as though uh, things operated exactly how they promised that they would operate uh, a couple of years ago when Green Mountain Power had announced this project. That is exactly the point. It's interesting at our uh, electrification debate series, which mm -hmm. uh, listeners of this podcast will hear about more in the near future. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the things that Enerstore was talking about, that the uh, short-term options for you know running your fridge or running your freezer to have that guarantee, even in the you know the worst case scenario, is still there. And as the grid gets more complicated and we see advances, there might be opportunities to time shift use mm -hmm. and uh, and help uh, provide uh, energy and uh, electricity when there are, are otherwise shortages. Michael, thanks again for bringing us the news. Much appreciated. Thank you, Francis. Now let's uh, listen to my conversation with Tonya Leach of Quest. This was recorded in early November 2019 in Ottawa. I'm joined by Tanya Leach, the executive director of Quest. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Francis. Great to be here. Well, we've been trying to schedule this podcast for quite some time, but <laughs> it's great to finally to finally get you in, get you into the office, and have an opportunity for a chat. Uh, just so the the listener can place it, depending upon the, some of the stuff that we're talking about, we're recording this in early November uh, 2019, uh, and we're actually in Ottawa. And uh, this is the, the conversation that I've been wanting to have for quite some time with you about, uh, about Quest and Quest's view of the energy system, the Quest's view of what the future is going to look like, and kind of your take on the future as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So let's start with, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what Quest is and where it came from. Sure. Uh, so Quest is a national nonprofit organization, and we have a vision of Canada as a nation of smart energy communities. Uh, we've been in existence for 12 years now, and we were founded by the Canadian Electricity Association, the Canadian mm -hmm. Gas Association, and an environmental nonprofit out of Toronto Pollution Probe. Mm -hmm. um, so those three organizations 12 years ago, um, I would say we're a little bit frustrated that the energy discourse in Canada was all about energy supply and where right. we're going to get the next electron or the next gigajoule. Yep. Um, but nobody was really talking about the opportunity for um, a much you know, a conversation around how energy is actually being used mm -hmm. in Canada and the opportunity that was being left on the table from that perspective, both from an energy efficiency perspective, but from an integration of systems perspective. Right. So um, Quest was sort of birthed from that 12 years ago. And if we sort of fast forward to where we are today, uh, we're in a place where this whole concept of what we originally called integrated community energy systems, mm -hmm. we now term smart energy communities, mm -hmm. um, has really become 
become uh, increasingly sort of front and center as a pathway forward for Canada as it relates to many issues, issues of, of climate and energy, um, and really, you know, making sure that we've got solid economic mm -hmm. development and, and many other opportunities before us. Uh, but Quest is an organization, what we actually do um, is that we, we do three main things. Right. We are a connector, we're an influencer, and an educator. So we bring together typically disparate groups, so um, utilities, energy service mm -hmm. providers, uh, policy makers of all, at all three levels, uh, with the build, develop, and asset management sector right. to see how they can actually work better together so that energy is uh, used in the most efficient manner possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and look for those opportunities and synergies for integration across the system at a local level. Right. Um, so that's the connecting piece. Mm -hmm. um, on the influencing side, uh, so we're, I wouldn't, I'd say we're a sort of soft eye influencer. We're, yeah. we're not a, a pure advocacy shop by any stretch. But you, but, do, but you do do advocacy. We do, yeah, yeah we absolutely yeah. do. We weigh in on, um, on various sort of uh, policies mm -hmm. that um, are either under development or in play that we feel are um, perhaps detrimental or, or in a, a setting up a barrier for the forward momentum for smart energy communities across Canada. So that means that we're playing in policy at the local level. We play in policy at the, at the provincial level. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's the, the energy space, but then also at the federal level as mm -hmm. well as uh, sort of encouraging various mm -hmm. uh, policy changes and shifts. Right. Um, so that's the influencing piece. And then uh, as an educator, we conduct um, various different types of research. Um, typically where we see gaps in the market in knowledge or where there is a void in a sort of tool or, or something that would help the market move forward. Right. And I can give some examples of, of some of that. Yeah, we could, yeah, it would be interesting to circle back on those yeah. when we roll through. I, I, I remember back when it started 12 years ago what the five letters stood for. Does it still stand for anything? Because I, I, I don't see any reference to Oh, the, the Quest letters, yeah. the acronym of Quest. Yeah, the acronym. Yeah, is it still I mean, an acronym or is it now just sort of, everybody just calls it Quest? Everybody then? just calls us Quest, but um, originally it's Quality Urban Energy Systems of Tomorrow. Right. I'd like to change that T to today versus tomorrow because I think we're, we're kind of there. <laughs> but um, yes, Quest is actually an acronym and that's that's what originally stood for. Okay. So what? Uh, so you, you, you've got those you connecting, advocating, educating. Maybe let's take uh, let's let's take connecting uh, uh, first. What do you what do you see as the biggest challenges there? And what's the gap that that Quest is trying to fill? Yeah, um, well, I think that yeah, just the nature of our our, our structures across Canada, things mm -hmm. are very siloed, right? People right. typically operate within their own space, and they don't necessarily look for the opportunities to be working across silos. And I think if we're going to actually make progress right. um, at, uh, you know, I would say kind of at all levels across Canada, if we're going to make progress, we have to actually see how we can work better together. So is that is that principally a, a function of sort of the, the provincial territorial dynamic? Or is it is it more, even more fundamental? than Well, I, I mean, I think it is kind of that provincial territorial dynamic, right. just because you know, energy is kind of structured yeah. within those silos as right. well. Right. But um, but there's certainly uh, the, the opportunities for learning from different jurisdictions mm -hmm. um, is also very important, right. right? Where there's there's some great things happening in various jurisdictions and, and sharing that knowledge through being able to connect people together mm -hmm. um, is, is a great way to help. Uh, you know, different m people move forward and, and understand different perspectives. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I guess if I wanted to point to it to a specific example mm -hmm, sure. on that, I think, you know, with this energy transition that I, I would argue we're sort of in the thick of at yeah. this point, um, yeah. perhaps early in the thick of. 
Um, there's a number of different um, sort of barriers that are mm -hmm. out there. And uh, one, which is uh, front and center, I know you just had a conversation with, with David Morton not too long ago, yep. Um, yep. is the regulatory piece. And yeah. one of the things that is interesting about that is, um, you know, that the energy and regulatory conversation has typically been a conversation between, you know, legislators and, uh, legis legislators and policymakers and the utilities. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, communities are starting to understand, um, and, a, and sort of maybe it's a driven by climate, but right. other economics and other things, that there is an opportunity for them to actually engage more uh, completely in, mm -hmm. the, in an energy conversation that they never have before. Mm -hmm. But there's a disconnect right now in that the... Um, you know, the, the com communities as they're putting in place their community energy plans yeah. or their community sustainability plans, climate plans, etc., are not appreciating or, or have the knowledge of what, um, how they actually use energy in their communities. Mm -hmm. And so they're putting these plans in place. I, I, I'm, and I'm just generalizing here. There's, yeah, there's some yeah. communities that are obviously much are, further well, ahead absolutely. and quite versed in energy. Um, but, uh, but the disconnect is that we recognize that there's some there's some fundamental um, problems, I guess we'll call it, or, or um, challenges with the regulatory system. So mm -hmm. it has served us very well for the last hundred years, but as we're trying to innovate, there's a bit of a, a conflict there. Right. Um, and yet the 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 innovation conversation is happening between regulators and utilities, but not really understanding. Um, the impact of those decisions on communities mm -hmm. and communities mm -hmm. likewise are not really understanding the uh, the impact of the decisions that are being made on their objectives. Right. So there's a there's a bit of a, a disconnect there. And so being able to connect mm -hmm. these various typically disparate groups together mm -hmm. to help them understand um, the the you know how that their decisions influence other people's right. desires and actions and goals uh, is, is really important to being able to move us all forward together. Yeah, yeah. So uh, advocacy and mm. to advocate, which is the sort of the second pillar that you were talking about. We've just come through a, a federal election. <laughs> yes, we have. Yes, we have. <laughs> uh, and so uh, does that play at all into um, into your future plans uh, we now have we're, we're going to be we're, we're going to have a new cabinet yeah. uh, shortly here in Canada uh, and so what is uh, what is that going to mean or will it mean something different for quest uh, it absolutely will yeah um, and the biggest thing I uh, see here and sort of opportunity I see here is uh, sort of helping the federal government leverage smart energy communities mm -hmm. as a mechanism to help bridge that east-west divide that they as a minority government with no right. uh, sort of red out in the in the in the west um, uh, can help solve part of that problem yeah. um, specifically because when we start talking about um, energy at the community level you're mm -hmm. talking about what matters to Canadians mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're talking about uh, sustainable infrastructure reliable infrastructure right. um, you know affordability and those those are the things that really matter to Canadians yep. and if you can bridge a conversation between energy and climate because they are so polarizing at this point yeah. um, by talking about what matters to Canadians and be able to actually drive positive change forward through smart energy communities okay. there's a there's a there's a mechanism there there's a okay. pathway there so so you said is if you can bridge those two so here's the follow-on question can you 
Um, and and if, if, uh, do you have some examples that, that you'd point to, or, or, or uh, either through Quest or, or other examples of people that have been able to been able to bridge the two? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, there's some communities out there that are doing some really yeah. interesting things. Um, does that extrapolate itself up to the federal level at well, this point? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other question. But, yeah. um, but the answer is yes. I mean, some of the, the, the sort of media conversations around things like, you know, why did Justin Trudeau uh, put in place a, a climate, uh, sorry, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for, the... Um, Pan-Canadian framework on climate no. change? Yeah. <laughs> uh, carbon pricing. So why, okay, did, why yes. did we move forward with carbon pricing yeah. and buy a pipeline all in the same week? Right. Right? Like, right. So for, for, to me, that makes absolute sense, right? Because for me, that, you know, this energy transition, like it's all hands on deck. We can't yeah. just eliminate part of the economy in order to move forward. We have right. to help these, you know, big blocks move forward together. Right. And there is lots of great stuff that is happening in the oil patch as it relates to innovative technologies yep. that are helping to reduce the the climate uh, the the environmental impact and the and the greenhouse gas emissions. Oh, don't worry. I got Tim Egan is going to come on a future podcast and we'll talk about renewable natural gas. Right, exactly. And, and, and so there's hydrogen there's and all, all those those, sure. those really positive Absolutely. things and yeah. if you if you are uh, if you only have a climate lens on, yeah. you don't appreciate, uh -huh. uh, you won't appreciate those things, right? right. Um, you also are not appreciating the massive amount of um, uh, investment that we've placed in the infrastructure that we have before us today. Right. So why would you right. throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There's a lot of really positive things happening um, in the traditional sort of fossil industry. And you can, you can, you can kind of find the sweet spot mm -hmm. between that and the climate agenda right. where uh, we like we all use energy right and if you think that we're going to be able to transition to a completely clean energy um, environment very quickly I think you're a little bit disillusioned like maybe that's possible but I don't think the economics actually allow that to happen to do it immediately yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so the, you know this is a transition and it has to take place over time right. there has to be incremental changes that take place we have to and we will fail uh, but we have to do take a whole pile of small failures in order to see the success at the end so yes you can bridge that divide between mm -hmm. climate and um uh, and and energy right. um and you know fundamentally one of those kind of coming back to what matters to Canadians, uh, affordability matters to Canadians. Yeah. And so you can't forge too far one way or another right. without, you know, kind of jeopardizing either affordability or the economy so, or the um, or the environment. So you, there, there is a middle ground there that has to be found. Right. Um, and I believe the Swarange Communities is part of that mm -hmm. uh, pathway to, yeah. to move that forward. You know, it's interesting when you when you when you uh, mention that. Uh, um, uh, the, the the desire that some have to immediately you know like right away move to a, to a, a completely different uh, system mm -hmm. one that you know that's that's you know completely non-emitting. Uh, I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today uh, about this, and we were talking about the unintended consequences in some jurisdictions where there are are you know some people that would like to see a, a, an immediate move to a hundred percent renewable future, and as a result, decisions that would incrementally move us forward. Uh, are not being made, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they refer to that as as uh, the unintended consequences of dangerous optimism, which I thought was kind of an interesting, interesting. term. Yeah. That, that yes, of course, you know we're optimistic and we should be able to do this, but but um, it needs to be grounded in reality. Yeah, it does. And and, and so know, is that is that one of the roles that you see Quest playing as 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 trying to bring that sense of reality to some absolutely. of these conversations? Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think that 
because we are in the thick of this transition, right. um, there is a risk of us making us as kind of you know Canada as a whole mm-hmm. um, making some pretty bad decisions, right? right? And, mm-hmm. and if we are not careful and and take incremental moves mm-hmm. versus one giant leap, um, we do run the risk of of making a, a really you know, a big mistake, mm. um, and and we can't. We don't have time for that, right? We we don't have time to. We don't have the both time from an environmental perspective, and and it would also have economic um, impacts that would be sort of go on for <laughs> in perpetuity, right? right? Sure. So so there's a number of, of risks that are kind of situated out there. That means doesn't mean we can't move. We mm-hmm. need to move, but we need to move incrementally. Gotcha. Yeah. So the third pillar you talked about was education. Yes. Uh, maybe give us a, a bit of a sense me and the, and the listener a sense of, of what are some of the things that, that Quest is trying to do, what are mm. the sorts of things that you're trying to achieve with your educational activities? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to point to the two different sort of projects um, that are, uh, one is, is is sort of wrapping up its pilot stage and mm-hmm. the other is, is actually just about to get started. Um, so the first one is our Smart Energy Communities Benchmark. Okay. And so this is, um, it is a tool and it is designed for communities. And when I say that, I don't just mean the municipality. It's the, it's the it is the municipality, but with in conjunction with um, the uh, the utilities and the energy service providers and the businesses that make up a community. Mm-hmm. And what it does, it's unique in that uh, rather than sort of you know checking the box to say yes, I've met this these various objectives. Right. Um, it actually looks at policy and process. Mm-hmm. And so where are you? Kind of on that on that continuum of making positive incremental progress on policy and on on procedure, mm-hmm. uh, looking at you know governance uh, structures and um, other social kind of uh, impacts. Um, so there's ten key performance indicators embedded in the benchmark that help communities at large understand where they are today, sort of right. baselining where they're at, and then also as they start to uh, you know invest in their own uh, communities and invest in their community energy plan, mm-hmm. it provides a mechanism for them to measure how they're actually progressing on becoming smarter about their the energy uh, use in their communities. Right. Um, so that's one kind of example. So mm-hmm. there was a recognition that while there's um, a number of different programs out there that that you know sort of help you understand. And, uh, you know, how good your transportation system is or how good your mm-hmm. uh, your waste and water system is. There's nothing that kind of looks at it holistically and looks at, at it from, um, you know, from from multiple different angles. And so that's the, the, the benchmark tool. So we piloted that through nine different communities across Canada over the course okay. of the last two years yeah. of various archetypes, like large cities like mm-hmm. the city of Calgary, uh, Grand Prairie, um, you know, right down to smaller cities like Bridgewater and Nova Scotia. So, okay. so yeah. lots of different archetypes within that um, that has helped to, to build the tool itself. Uh, that tool is being launched uh, later this year, mm-hmm. and uh, and now we're looking to you know how do we scale that up and roll that out um, uh, to more communities across Canada. So what um, um, what what kind of lessons that are you potentially bringing from outside of Canada? Because I, I know your the, the the delivery of of, uh, of quests services and, and, and programs uh, are uh, for Canadians. Yeah, but. Uh, 
we're not reinventing the wheel. I'm hoping, right? You, <laughs> I'm assuming. I'm assuming there, there are people that are looking at some of the best practices in these in these spaces. Um, uh, Scandinavia, for example, yeah. but there's lots of other jurisdictions. How are how are we bringing in um, these learnings in in other jurisdictions uh, into the conversation? The, the, yeah. the, the, the quest conversation here in Canada. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we we don't do a lot of that, but we do um, have. Sort of relationships with different organizations okay. that do, um, and um, and and so th- I think there are a lot. There's a lot of opportunity to learn from other countries, but we also need to make the made in Canada solution right. right? We can't just cookie cutter what works in Scandinavia because it's not going to work here because yep. we're a very different geographically, a very different yeah, yeah. different country. Yeah. Um, so yes, you know the the things like um, district heating systems, mm-hmm. for instance, which are very popular over mm-hmm. there, has have never really made uh, a real impact here. And I think that a big part of that is that we are a vast country right. um, with much lower densities than than we see in the Scandinavian countries. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of looking for the opportunities where it can work. And obviously yeah. that means kind of in, um, in in denser environments, which is kind of more cities versus communities or, or rural, remote, in, you know, possibly indigenous and in other communities, right? So the the challenge for Canada is that um, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Yep. Um, you know, we're a federation, um, and the energy is very uh, provincial and territorial in its nature. Um, our cities and communities are, you know, there's a vast different array of them. They have different challenges. Some mm-hmm. of them have challenges around energy poverty versus clean drinking water versus, you know, so other people, they have different angles that they need to come at this from. So yes, we can learn from, from sort of international best practices Mm -hmm. and what's Mm -hmm. going on in other places, but we have to translate that into what it actually means and how we can, what parts of that we can leverage for the Canada, made in Canada solution. Gotcha. Okay. Now you and I have had a, a number of opportunities to sit side by side in front of parliamentary committees and yeah. provide testimony to <laughs> parliamentary committees, both the House and, and Senate uh, here in Ottawa. Um, my approach is, is uh, has been fairly simple because my membership is pretty clear. When I go there, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of you know, mm-hmm. the electricity companies themselves. Um, uh, how do you how do you approach that um, when you're speaking on behalf of Quest? Because it's 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 more of a, a, a kind of a broader network. Um, when you when you're when you're you know at a parliamentary committee and you're speaking in your mind you're speaking on behalf of of, of whom? And, and <laughs> That's you... a challenging question. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's I mean it's it's part of the uniqueness of Quest, yeah. right? Is yeah. that we don't have that you know sort of um, single industry kind right. of you know. Yeah, uh, my board of directors is made up of twenty eight. Yeah. CEOs of, of, of electricity companies. Right. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, I mean, it, it's it's kind of a, a middle ground that yeah. we're trying to thread, right? And right. I think part of what we are able to do is because we are national but local, we're able to bring multiple different examples into, uh, to sort of feed into some of that that process, right, right. With, with, with the federal government. Um, is it perfect? No, absolutely mm-hmm. not. But there's, because we're that independent third party mm-hmm not, you know, sort of serving on the interest of any one industry, um, we are able to bring messages from multiple different industries together to right. the federal government and uh, with no invested interest in the outcome per se. Right. Um, so there's, there's uh, that, that gives us, I, I would say, um, it makes us unique and it gives us a bit of an advantage when it comes to, uh, mm-hmm. to speaking with 
the federal government and and provincial mm-hmm. governments, etc. Um, so yeah, and and you know to the we also like to um, say that we're you know we're not advocating on behalf of any one technology or or any one fuel source. Right. Um, we believe that uh, policy needs to be principled versus prescriptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we shouldn't be sort of setting out policy that picks right. various technology winners yeah. or, or um, energy source winners, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to create the conditions that enable the solution that's right for that environment, whether that's if it's at the community level or mm-hmm. the provincial level, but uh, create the conditions to allow the market to really find the right pathway mm-hmm. forward. What is the quest future? Uh, vision look like if if we w- lived in a in a world in, in 2050 yeah. where um, you know the objectives of, of quest were realized what would life look like for uh, I always think in terms of customer but uh, you know when, when I've when I've been at some of the quest events it's you know we're we're talking in terms of uh, you know electricity and natural gas and water and wastewater and municipal planning mm-hmm. and all of this but so for the for the for the, the average Canadian the average Canadian yeah. if we're in, living in a in a in a fully realized quest uh, universe, what, what would that look like for them? Well, I think that uh, to the average person, life wouldn't actually look or feel that much different, right? Okay. I mean, you're still flicking a switch and your your lights turn on, mm-hmm. like the you know those those kind of basics of life. You yeah. get in your car to go somewhere. Um, I think those those kind of normal day to day behaviors are still very much the same. But I think they're underlying all of that. There's there's an um, there's a significant increase in the amount uh, in the efficiency mm-hmm. of the energy systems that serve you in your day to day life. Okay. Um, that uh, you know you there's more opportunity for people to live, work, and play in mm-hmm. uh, you know in, in one kind of neighborhood, as right. it were. Um, and so the, this the inherent um, opportunity of integration right. um, makes the can make the system that much more efficient. So, but to the average person, it probably doesn't look or feel much different. So it does look or feel much but different to the economically. Person, but it's, they, it's you know it's more efficient. It's, it's more efficient. Less it's energy. Not costing you more. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, and, and uh, and, and your community is producing less emissions, right? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, but but the, your day-to-day probably doesn't necessarily feel that much different. I mean, maybe you have better transit systems than yeah, you have today. Yeah, We're yeah. sitting in Ottawa, and that's, that's a challenge these <laughs> days. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I think, you know, the day-to-day doesn't really feel that much different to Canadians. But right. I think that the... The this, impact of that day-to-day, though, is different to society. Correct. Right. And I think that the systems that serve you are mm-hmm. probably a bit different, right? Like right. the business model of the traditional LDC business model um, is probably different tomorrow than it is today. Okay. How so? How potentially? What, what sort of changes would happen to a, a, an LDC? Well, I think that um, like there's an opportunity to, you know, there, there's a, an increasing kind of drive for... Um, distributed energy resources, okay. for instance, yep. um, which opens up a marketplace of prosumers yep. that we, you know, if you look at all the buildings around us, that's yes. all assets owned by somebody. Yep. Uh, and there's an opportunity for every one of those buildings to actually be con- contributing to the grid. Right. And so the who owns that and where does regulation start and stop with mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Um, is a big question that we don't yet know the answers to. But these this this sort of transition to you know potentially bringing you know bringing on more renewables into the system yeah. and and those kind of things 
give us the opportunity to have a different business model within, you know, in your case, LDCs, but, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be the gas utilities or other thermal type utilities. Um, uh, so, so there could be kind of more energy service providers in the space. And what right. does that actually mean for what have been our traditional monopolies that mm-hmm. have provided uh, the reliable, safe, you know, affordable, et cetera, um, services that we use today. And so so I think there's some changes coming there, yeah. like transactive energy, like sure. there's a bunch of things that can change those business models a bit, but we don't necessarily have all the answers to what that really does look like yet. Right. And I think there's lots of utilities out there understanding that this transformation is coming and they're trying to figure out, I mean, as you, there's, there's synergies that you can see historically too, right. like the telecom industry and the taxi industry and others, right? This sort of disruptive piece. Uh, and there's lots of oh, ideas out great. on the Let's table, right? Let's use the right? taxi industry as, as an analogy. <laughs> but no, I know what you I know what you mean. And earlier you'd mentioned you'd mentioned regulatory, but one of the challenges would be that that, that kind of vision that you're talking about, that future vision, um, wouldn't work under our current Correct. regulatory structure. Yeah. So that's been part of the conversations as well. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for, yeah. for thanks for kind of planting that seed. So yeah. the other the other uh, education and sort of project right. piece that I that that Quest has underway, which we're just kicking off right now, okay. is um, working across eight jurisdictions across yep. Canada, assuming fully funded project. Um, to develop regulatory innovation sandbox frameworks okay. um, for, for eight jurisdictions across Canada. And so the the um, interesting part about this initiative is, I mean, we I think we all understand and recognize the kind of, I'm going to use polarized again, I overuse that word, but the yeah. you know regulation yeah. is kind of at one end of the spectrum and innovation is at the other, and how do we actually bring right. those closer together? Yeah. Uh, and so sandboxes, I, I don't mm-hmm. think, I mean, David Morton spoke about sandboxes yep. as well. Yep, we've um, had quite a few conversations yeah. about regulatory sandboxes on yeah. the podcast. Yeah, so I think, yeah. you know, uh, there's, there's an opportunity to kind of create this space for, um, to test innovative solutions mm-hmm. um, without losing the benefit of what we know of regulation, right? right? And so there, we need to kind of bring those two pieces together. So we're, we're doing some work to kind of create uh, some understanding of how those um, sandbox sandboxes should be framed. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding, as I said earlier, that we're a vast country, we're a federation, and so right. what works in one province is not necessarily going to be able to be you know, appropriate for another. Mm-hmm. You probably need to have some 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 nuanced differences mm-hmm. between them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, anyway, that's a, another project of yeah. ours that's just getting underway is to try and help bring those the the regulation and innovation right. agendas a little bit closer together. One one of my uh, previous podcast guests was uh, Cynthia Chapman from Campwood. So. Um, does any of this work um, in the regulatory space? Is any of it done in, in cooperation or collaboration with Campwood? Um, we don't have a, a direct sort of partnership with them right now, mm-hmm. but uh, we're obviously keeping them aware of, of the work that we're doing, right. and we're following the work that they're doing. Yeah. And so there's there is certainly um, uh, some sort of established relationship there between the two organizations. Quest also operates what we call a Smart Energy Leaders Dialogue. So senior right. executives, we bring them together across Canada three times a year, yep. and we are are, uh, and part part of the the group that we bring together is is regulators as well. So they okay. can actually it gives them an opportunity outside of a hearing room to hear from utilities, communities, mm-hmm. uh, energy service providers, technology providers. Mm-hmm 
to hear multiple different perspectives on sort of what some of the barriers are to this transition that we're going through, um, what some of the opportunities are, and kind of looking further down the road. I mean, we're talking about kind of future, but, you know, further down the road at like, what are some of the the challenges that aren't yet, we're not yet facing today, but we can see them coming. And we need to start thinking about how we address some of that. Uh, And I think the the regulatory innovation sandbox Mm -hmm. concept is one of those mechanisms that allows you to kind of deal with uh, some potential future opportunities and future challenges uh, in a a more sort of framed environment. One of the other things that I did want to ask you about is, um, it's more of a nuts and bolts question. You've got an interesting organization. Um, you don't you don't have your team sitting all together in an office in a <laughs> no, traditional office, uh, all in the same place mm-hmm. and all in the same space. You're a, a, a virtual organization. You've got members of your team uh, in different jurisdictions around the country. Yeah. How does that work? And, and um, you know how how are you finding it? What are the what are the pros and cons of of that kind of a, that kind of a structure? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, to be quite honest, we've, we've completely embraced it. Yeah. Um, and once you've got your, your sort of systems in place, right. you know, cl- sort of cloud-based systems, yeah. um, it actually becomes quite streamlined, mm-hmm. uh, other than the fact that you don't run into somebody at a water cooler or, yeah. or in a kitchen or over coffee. Um, uh, it actually works really, really well. Um, I mean, there's inherent challenges as there are in in sort of working in a, in an office type environment sure. as well. Um, things like uh, I don't know if anybody on my team has really taken a sick day because <laughs> you can work from anywhere at any right. point in time, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's there's those yes, whether it yeah, from your bed with a box of Kleenex beside you, but yeah. um, so there's those kind of challenges, um, and and then obviously that the challenge of just being face-to-face with people, right? There's a lot of value in being face-to-face with people. So we have... As, you know, various platforms that allow us to actually see each other right. Um, right. Uh, through our like Zoom um, uh, conference calling kind of platform, which allows us to run webinars and do a bunch of other things as gotcha. well. Yeah. Uh, so that that helps. Uh, but we do bring the team together three times at minimum, three times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and last time in a very remote location where we, where, uh, unbeknownst to us before we got there, didn't have Wi-Fi. So that was interesting <laughs> for the first for the first half a day. Everybody was a little stressed about the fact that they were kind of disconnected from the world. And then it worked really, really well. Sure. Well, yeah, particularly for an organization that spends all of its time connected virtually. Absolutely. But, you know, for oh, us, it is really important that we have, uh, that we are sort of spread out across the country because right. of the uniqueness of Canada and understanding uh, we're able to share between ourselves um, sort of, you know, what's happening in Alberta that right. relates to what's happening in Nova Scotia or in Ontario or, you know, and we can see where there's opportunities to share lessons learned because we are all across the country. Right. Uh, and if we weren't virtual, we would have to be a much larger, larger organization to yeah, be able to do yeah, that. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, it makes us quite nimble. Yeah. It doesn't come without any challenges. But, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm reflecting back on the first conversation I would have had about Quest, which would have been me and um, Ann Kelly and Sharzad Rabar and Louis Marmon. Yeah. Um, uh, probably a little more than a dozen years ago. And one of the things that I believe it was Louis that said it is that um, what we want to do with Quest is um, imagine, dream of what that, that future uh, end state should look like. 
and then figure out what the practical steps are to bring us from from uh, today to that, to that to that to that dream of, mm-hmm. of, of that fully integrated future. So when we started, and I asked you what Quest stood for, um, you you said you rather think of uh, the T standing for today instead of tomorrow. So have we uh, arrived at that dream state? Um, well, I, I, it's hard for me to answer that question, uh-huh. and, and I'll say I'll tell you why. Uh, because to me, smart energy community is not an end state. Right. Right. You're always. We're never going to reach the destination. Never say we're actually, done, and we don't have to do anything no, else. Yeah. No. But that being said, we do need communities across Canada yeah. to uh, better understand the impact of their decisions on. Uh, energy use yeah. and on therefore greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't just point upstream and say it's their fault. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We are all at fault because we are all, you know, if, if we're talking climate, we're all right. at fault because we're all using the energy, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so we all have a responsibility to be part of that solution. Um, so no, it's not an end state. So I don't say that we, yeah, we're, yeah. we're we're never we've never we will never achieve our dream. I guess okay. maybe, maybe that's a bad yeah. thing to say, but but we can get much closer to it, and we can get into a space where um, where you know communities across Canada are understanding, uh, appreciating, and uh, you know what energy does for them, and how we can move forward to become much more efficient about how we use it, and and sort of see the the environmental benefits as right. well. Right. Final question I ask just about everybody that comes on the podcast this question, and that is a book, either the book that you're reading or a book that you've recently read that you would recommend to the to the listener of the podcast. Oh, the recommend piece. The recommend. <laughs> well, uh, I have three young children, yes. uh, an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, and five-year-old. So that means that a lot of my reading is actually <laughs> their books, but I'm really... We, do, we did have a previous recommendation from somebody who was on the podcast, yeah. and it was a book aimed at four-year-olds. Okay. Uh, well, but... I'm going to go a little bit older than okay, four-year-olds. Good. So Thanks. my <laughs> eldest, my eight-year-old, uh, has um, I probably due to, to her her two-year-old, you know, her cousin who's two years older than her, mm. um, fallen in love with Harry Potter. And mm-hmm. I, uh, when Harry Potter came out, I was obviously a bit younger than I am now, <laughs> and I loved those books. And right. so now I'm rereading them with her. Oh. And, um, you know, it's just, it's magical. It's yep. creative. Uh, part of what I love about it is that we are, so, you know, you and I, I'm sure, are exactly the same. So focused on, you know, some of the challenges that we face here in Canada and the challenges sure. that are being faced around the world. And um, it's nice to just disconnect from that for a little bit and yeah. move into a magical world. So uh, so my recommendation is, is Harry Potter <laughs> and there's lots of books. in a magical world. Yeah, disconnected right. to a magical world. Yeah. Tanya, thank you very much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Francis. It was great to be here with you. I'm now joined on the podcast by Alex Kent and Joel Lancaster of the CEA team, who have recently co-authored an article in Renew Magazine. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So maybe let's start with you, Alex. Tell us a little bit about what the article, uh, what was the uh, article about? The article is, fittingly, because we co-authored it, about partnerships, ways that electrical utilities are working with the communities they serve in new and innovative business models. Uh, to form partnerships with those communities as well as vendors to serve people better. So Alex, tell us a little bit about uh, some of the uh, some of the examples of partnerships that were in the article. Uh, a big one is the Watsana Kiniap transmission line or the line that brings light. 
This is a partnership between 24 First Nations and Fortis Ontario to build a substantial transmission line into Northern Ontario to serve those 24 com communities. Uh, it also has two really interesting features of the business arrangement. One, it is a First Nations owned and led project. Uh, they have a 61% stake in the transmission line, and this will transition to a 100% stake through time. Uh, this is a new business model. Also, the project was financed by deferred cost accounting for the diesel that these communities wouldn't consume. And that is an interesting way to look at why we should build things, not just whether it makes sense now, but doesn't meet, make sense and meet our policy goals and improve people's lives into the future, which I think is a really excellent way to consider is infrastructure worth the investment? Joelle, lessons learned from uh, from working on this uh, this article? My background in public policy, I've always kind of been interested in non-traditional ways of collaborating on public policy objectives. Mm -hmm. The electricity sector, I think, is a really interesting spot to be able to look at that because you do have many different actors between utilities, local governments, uh, indigenous governments, as well as the broader regulatory framework, uh, provincially and federally. Um, I thought this project was a really interesting one to look at because you have, rather than a top-down hierarchical approach to power in Ontario, it's more of a democratized, um, collaborative uh, method of bringing these communities onto the grid because mm -hmm. it's not something they would necessarily be able to do without partnership to the utilities that are already making up that foundational framework. Mm -hmm. And so in, in um, kind of your take on this, is this a one-off or is this more of uh, what the, the future uh, might be for uh, for these, these sorts of communities, bringing these remote communities online? I think it's definitely uh, something that we'll see more of in the future, mm -hmm. especially as more communities mm -hmm learn from these examples and see it as uh, possible for them to do in the future as well. So the future of partnerships, Alex, what's your, what's your sense? More of them, more interesting multilateral partnerships, and they involve uh, not just business to business partnerships, but uh, individual people in their homes. Uh, we're seeing a lot of growth in what's called edge of grid technologies. Right. Uh, it's not specifically discussed in the article, but just as a general principle. Mm -hmm. uh, people can now be prosumers where they can produce energy, they can consume energy, and they have a voice in the grid. So there will be more partnerships, more diverse, and individual people can be involved. Okay. And uh, maybe a final question for both of you, because you're both relatively new to CEA. Um, Joelle, you mentioned uh, as somebody who studied public policy, um, is, is that what's kind of drawn you to this kind of work here at the association? Is your interest in public policy? Uh, definitely. I think uh, access to electricity is pretty fundamental to the way that we live our lives today. So being able to work in a little bit of a in-between zone where in some provinces, some utilities are more closely aligned with their uh, provincial governments and others it's more open. Um, but the general goal is one that is very similar to a lot of goals in public policy, which is to serve the people, um, to bring to bring electricity to the society that we live in mm -hmm. that makes it run. Right. And Alex, what is it that uh, has drawn you to, to work in this space uh, at the association uh, in the electricity sector? My background is in ecology and geography. So I actually am very 
interested and curious and intellectually fulfilled by finding out how things work, uh, not necessarily in the engineering sense, but in the rules and interactions of different agents. Mm -hmm. So public policy for me is that look behind the curtain. How are things actually done? How is how does governance interact with business? How do private people express themselves? How do we work together to form a society? And I'll then echo Joel's comment on energy that really it is one of the fundamental ways that we express our lives and have the ability to uh, express ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then just for fun, one of the questions that I ask um, uh, everybody that comes on for the, the full-length conversations is about the book or, or book that they're currently reading or book that they've recently read that they would recommend to somebody else. So, Alex, you first, book that either you're reading or recently read that you would recommend others uh, pick up and crack the cover on. Okay. Uh, I recently reread, and I'm going to go a bit off script because this is a comic book, but it's called The Black Monday Murders, Volumes 1 and 2. And the premise is that money is actually magic, and it is a noir murder mystery with an occult flavor. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> okay. All right. Joel, what about you? Recent uh, recent book? Uh, I'm currently halfway through The Age of Radiance, which basically chronicles the history of nuclear energy, nuclear in medicine. So it starts off looking at Mary Curie and her life and hmm. how she not only... Uh, worked in a lab, but her life before that, coming from Poland, the family she came from. And then it really, it brings a very human-centric view to the entire science of it, as well as covering some of the more technical details over the years. Um, it's incredibly written, and I'm enjoying it a lot. Wow. Okay. Uh, Joelle and Alex, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor, invite you to tune in for future discussions, and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.